I'd like to address the subject today in the sermon that I hope will be helpful and beneficial to not only to those of you in the room, but to those that may be listening at some other time <clears throat> at other points of uh, the compass around the earth. I hope it will be something not only beneficial and informative, but also something that as we see this big picture that God outlines in the scriptures, as Mr. Lindley was singing about in the song, how great God is. I want to talk about a big picture this afternoon that does show how great God is, how much God cares for us. And I hope that we can be very thankful for that as we focus on this big picture. You know, there's a saying that is supposedly a curse. May you live in interesting times. It's supposed to be a Chinese saying, but nobody's ever produced the original Chinese wording. But we certainly do live in interesting times today. <clears throat> you know, not only interesting, but exciting, sobering, scary, uncertain, and yet also very uh, significant from the standpoint of prophecy. You know, almost every day we hear in the news about increasingly severe weather situations that develop around the world. We've read and heard about in the last year or so record droughts in different places of the world. You know, down in Texas and Oklahoma, they've had record-breaking droughts and fires down there. I saw on the Internet this morning that they're having fires in Western Australia. It's not a heavily populated part of Australia, but people are fleeing to the ocean to get away from some of these fires. <clears throat> we have heard about uh, violent storms and hurricanes, a tornado that went through Joplin, Missouri, and just tore things up there. We also read about other major disasters over the last several years. You know, the oil well that exploded in the Gulf and then proceeded to pollute uh, large areas of the Gulf of Mexico. The tsunami that hit the uh, Japanese power plant and a lot of other things happening around the world, earthquakes, not only down in New Zealand, but in Turkey and different parts of the world. You know, we watch wars and rumors of wars and famines and things like that happening. Governments have toppled all across North Africa. And in the Middle East, there's trouble there. We're watching the moral decay in the United States and different other countries around the world. You know, just in the last several weeks, things have begun to happen in Europe that are literally surprising. You know, the euro is coming apart, it appears. We're talking about a Euro-geddon is about to happen over there. Uh, countries are talking about going back to their own currencies, getting out of the euro. <clears throat> The Germans are being accused of kind of uh, brinkmanship, of telling the people in Europe, you either play by our rules or face financial chaos. And things are happening over there, and yet uh, what we read about in the United States was last night, or was I guess Thursday night, uh, the, the, the mad shopping spree that happens right after Thanksgiving. And we're watching all the silliness of you know, political games that people are playing today. But over in Europe, they're talking about the, the European Union coming apart. There was an article in Der Spiegel <clears throat> online, German news source, 
where they were talking about different ideas that people have for Europe. And one particular individual associated with a think tank over there says what they ought to have is a, a popularly elected president of Europe. And he will then pick the ten best nations in Europe, the ten strongest nations in Europe, and make a council out of them. And the other 17, if there remain 17, will become kind of deputies, but they won't be part of this inner group of 10. Now, where have you heard things like that before? You know, the Bible talks about 10 kings will give their power, surrender their sovereignty to a leader in Europe. And here's the popular press beginning to say some of the very same things. The young fellow who was the uh, kind of defrocked defense minister of Europe or of Germany recently. He was in Canada with a meeting of defense ministers up there, Carl Theodore Zugutenberg. He's a Habsburg. But he was making statements to the press, even though he's not in a position of responsibility. He said what Europe is suffering from is not so much a financial crisis. They're suffering from a crisis of leadership. And before he went out of power, He was saying we need to send the German armed forces down there to the Horn of Africa after those pirates and get them. And his comments were well received over there. Another gentleman that we've talked about from time to time, Neil Ferguson. He's a British economic historian, teaches at Harvard. He had a kind of a, a speculative article in Wall Street Journal just last week where he was saying that uh, uh, by 2020, about seven or eight years from now, he was saying that the capital of Europe may well be in Vienna. And we may see a revival of or a reconstitution of the Habsburg Empire in Central Europe. Now, this goes over a lot of people's heads, but this is what Bible prophecy talks about about a beast power in Europe influenced by a strong Catholic church. The Habsburgs provided a number of the emperors for the Holy Roman Empire. And Karl Zuzutenberg has Habsburg blood. Out of a Habsburg, before he died, made the statement. He said there may yet be a role for the Habsburg throne in Europe. We've been talking about these things for 60 or 70 years, and in the last couple of weeks we've been reading about these things in the newspapers and watching these things on television. We are living in very interesting times, very sobering times, exciting times, scary times. If the euro goes down, it's going to have what some people have said, the effect of an economic tsunami around the world. We're living in very interesting times. However, brethren, what I want to talk about this afternoon, while things are happening in Europe and around the world, something else has been happening in the United States and some of the other Israelite countries around the world that is just as momentous, it's just as significant prophetically, and yet it's been happening slowly over the last couple of hundred years. 
And most people are really not attuned to these things. They don't grasp the magnitude of the historical and the prophetic events that have been taking place, are taking place, and will take place here in the United States, in Canada, in Britain, in South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and some of the other countries around the world where the ripple effects will also hit these countries. Because these things have been happening slowly over the last couple of hundred years and started to speed up in the last 50 years or so, many people don't notice, really, the magnitude or the significance. Because we've lost interest in history. It's not important. It's kind of a dull subject about dead people and a bunch of dates that we can't figure out that happened in places that we don't even know where they are. Also, because we're not really into prophecy today. Many studies have shown that Americans and people in Britain and other Christian countries are illiterate when it comes to the Bible. They know about Jesus. They know about God. But they don't understand Bible prophecy. I remember hearing one preacher one time talk about it. He's saying, you know, I don't talk much about prophecy because I don't understand it. <laughs> and yet he was a minister. Most people don't understand Bible prophecy. And if they are into prophecy, they don't see what relevance ancient history, especially the, the history of the Israelite nations, what does that have to do with us today? This was a long time ago. In the sermon today, I want to ask some rather probing questions. Do we understand what has happened to our nation? Do we understand what has happened in America over the last 200 years? And for those listening in Britain and Australia and New Zealand and other places, do we understand? Do they understand? Do you understand wherever you are? What is happening today and how significant these things really are? Do we grasp the magnitude of the changes that have taken place in this country? And I want to use America as an example because of the power and the influence America has had around the world. I want to use America as an example. We're not excluding what's happening in other nations. Do we understand how God views what is happening today and what has happened since the founding of our nation? We've got to understand a little bit about American history, which is not really taught today in many schools. And it's not believed. It's not deemed important today. But before I get into the sermon, I want to draw your attention. You don't have to turn there, but I do want to just talk briefly about it. Several sections of Scripture. Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 13, and Acts chapter 26. I would encourage you when you go home, jot these down, go home and read the entire section. But in all three of these sections of Scripture, Stephen and Paul refer to and rehearse briefly the history of Israel, the history of the Israelite nations. In Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 7 Stephen, who was preaching, doing miracles, was kind of arrested, drawn before the council, and he had to face his accusers. He said, Stephen's trying to get, get rid of all of our teachings, the teachings of Moses. But Stephen stood up, and you go through all of Acts chapter 7, a whole chapter where he rehearses the history of Israel to people in Jerusalem. He mentioned, you know, God made promises to Abraham, our forefather. God played a tremendous role 
in the history and the development of our nation. And you have turned away from that great God. And judgment is going to come on you. At the end of chapter 7, Stephen was stoned. They didn't want to hear their history rehearsed in front of them, especially the role that God had played. In Acts chapter 13, Paul, in one of his earlier sermons, is speaking to a group of Jews, probably some other Israelites, in a synagogue in Antioch. And he rehearses very briefly. He said, you're the chosen people. You are the chosen people of God. God has delivered your ancestors from bondage. He's given you a promised land. And he's also sent a savior for your sins. Paul talked about things like that. In Acts chapter 26, Paul was defending himself against charges before King Agrippa. And again, he rehearses very briefly the history of Israel and talks a little bit about his own personal history. Talked about the promises to the patriarchs and the glorious future that the chosen people have. Why do we find these references to history, this dull, boring, outdated subject? Several different times in the New Testament. We're not even looking at the Old Testament yet. The answer is basically each of these speakers, Stephen and Paul, tried to give a sense of history, a sense of perspective to their audience. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand how God has worked with your ancestors and your forefathers? How he's brought you to a point in history? He was trying to paint a big picture for them and let these people realize you're part of a plan. You're part of something God has been working out on this earth. And Mr. Armstrong used to use kind of the same analogy. Many people today don't understand what's happening in the world. They see what's happening. They don't like it, but they don't understand that there's a bigger picture. Mr. Armstrong used to use the analogy of walking into a movie. The last 10, 15 minutes of it, you see all this action, but you have no idea what the plot was because you weren't there for the first hour, hour and a half of the movie. Many people see what's happening in the world today, but they don't understand the big picture that we're part of. History is not a dull, boring subject whenever we understand there's a big picture and God is working out a plan and purpose on this earth. You know, the Bible doesn't view history as kind of a waste of time. I'd like you to turn quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul here again rehearses some history for the people in Corinth. Now, these weren't backwoods, you know, (laughs) uneducated people. These were business people. Corinth was one of the crossroads of the ancient world. These people were with it people. But he's saying, look, you need to understand some things. Paul wasn't just a New Testament Christian. He's talking about the Old Testament historical examples here. He says these are relevant. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Don't be ignorant that our fathers, all of our fathers, were under the cloud that passed through the sea. He's talking about the Exodus. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea as they went through the Red Sea. It was symbolic. And then he talks about down in verse 6. I'm skipping over some things. Now, these things became our examples 
to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. You know, what were the shoppers doing here in America <laughs> when the stores opened at midnight, grabbing their, their wire baskets, running through stores, trying to grab as much as they could? They were lusting after physical things. Now, if you were there, maybe you need to do some penance <laughs> and repent of all the lust. But he says, and do not become idolaters. You know, the Israelites saw God deliver them from Egypt with plagues that came on the Egyptians, but not on them. They saw God open the Red Sea. They saw that they walked through that. And it was these very same people before Sinai, when Moses went up on the mountain, he was going up there for 40 days. What did they do? Within 40 days. Moses is gone. He brought us out here to die. Aaron, make us a god. And they just didn't grab a cow and make a god. It was a god in Egypt by the name of Apis. The people worshipped. Within a matter of a little bit more than a month, these people turned away totally from the god that brought them out of Egypt with a high hand. It's unbelievable. I remember when I first came into the church, I said, I'm going to read through the Bible. I got to Exodus, and I thought, what's the matter with these people? <laughs> There's something wrong with these people. They saw how great God was, and within 30 days, they were worshiping idols again. But Paul is talking about this. He said, don't tempt Christ, don't tempt God, as the others did. But then verse 11, he said, all these things happened to them. They were recorded in the scriptures. All these things happened to them, the Israelites, as examples that we should learn from. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These things are there as examples for us living at the end of the age to learn from, to learn the lessons of history. You know, there's another saying that those who don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat the mistakes of history. Those who don't learn the lessons of history, they don't learn from the past, are doomed to repeat the mistakes of history. America today is repeating the mistakes of history of our Israelite ancestors, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and other nations around the world that follow these examples are not learning from the lessons of history. My purpose in the sermon today, I want to show how the history of Israel recorded in the scriptures and how the facts of American history hold important lessons for America and the world, and the church of God, if we have eyes to see. If we have eyes to see. I also want to show how you can use this information to prepare for a very exciting future. Again, if you have eyes to see, and a mind that can grasp the big picture that God gives us in the Scriptures. First thing I want to do is just look very quickly at the condition of contemporary America. 
the present so-called State of the Union. When you look around, what do you see? If you Again, if you have the eyes to see. We are a nation in deep financial trouble. A nation in deep financial trouble. We're spending more than we take in in taxes. We're borrowing money from other countries to maintain an artificial uh, lifestyle, to maintain our bases around the world militarily, and to even fight our wars. We're borrowing money from other countries that we're never going to be able to pay back. And as the world begins to realize this, it's going to impact our dollar, it's going to impact our economy, It's going to impact our lifestyles and our way of life in this country. We're a nation in the process of rejecting God and rejecting the biblical values that this nation was founded upon. As a nation, we've taken a moral nosedive. Fornication and adultery are rampant in this country. Some people said, well, divorce is going down. That's because many people are living together and never getting married. So there's nothing to divorce, nothing to happen. We have fractured families in America today. Marriage is being redefined today. doesn't have to be a man and a woman. probably could be two men and a cow. I mean, we're we're redefining fundamental values, and it's happening, not only in America, but in other places around the world. Homosexuality and same-sex marriages are being presented to children in grade school as a normal alternative. This is incredible today. Foul language... Passes for normal today. Television is crass and kind of stupid. Our leaders lie. Bankers steal. And judges promote their own political agenda in America today and in other places around the world. You know, many people are not happy. They look at what's happening in the world, they see these things, yet there are many people that are elated as they see these things happening. However, many of us, we do kind of shrug and say, well, that's kind of the way it is. It's going to happen. And then sometimes there's always the yes buts. You know, but America isn't that bad because 90% of Americans believe in God. 70 or 80% are Christians, claim to be Christians. And over 50% of Americans are in church every Sunday. And when you look at Europe, you know, we're really not that bad off. Over there, less than 10% of Europeans are in church on Sunday, even in Rome, even in Catholic Italy. 30 or 40% of Europeans don't believe in God. See, we look at that and we think we're not so bad all at all. Besides, in Europe, you don't hear politicians say, God bless the UK, or God bless Germany, or God bless Australia. These are things European politicians don't say, but we do say these things in our country. And sometimes we think, well, it's really not so bad here. 
And yet these are the perspectives that we get when we look from human perspectives, that we're not that bad. But, you know, that perspective overlooks a biblical perspective. It overlooks a historical perspective of where we came from and where we are today. This perspective that we look at today and kind of shrug, well, we're not so bad, overlooks God's perspective. What does God think about what has been happening in America, what has happened in Britain, what has happened in some of these countries? What I want to do this afternoon, then, is look at what has happened in our countries. I want to look at what the Bible has to say about the past of America, America's history. Again, we're using America as an example. I want to summarize very quickly some of this from the Old Testament. But I would encourage you to spend some time on some of the scriptures we're going to at least mention. And maybe review the booklet, United States and Britain and Prophecy. Again, it used to be titled years ago, The United States and British Commonwealth and Prophecy. Because a number of these things are going to impact nations that were or probably still are part of the Commonwealth. You know, these moral tsunamis that are going to be, that are heading around the world. Why have the changes in America and Britain and different parts of the world, why have they happened? What does God have to say about these things? Why did certain nations like America and Britain wind up having so much influence around the world? Was it just an accident? Many people seem to think so. Why is God going to be very upset and deliver some very serious consequences to the peoples of America and Britain and some of the other nations around the world? Most people don't understand. They don't know. And yet the Bible and the history that's recorded there makes it very plain and clear. Let's just review very quickly. You can jot some of the scriptures down. You don't need to turn to them. But the Bible reveals in the Old Testament the story of Israel and the peoples who became the peoples of Britain and America and other places around the world. There's a perspective there that is not being taught today, hasn't been taught for years. In Genesis 12, God chose to work with a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he said, if you obey my instructions, if you obey my instructions, you're going to become a great nation. That is, your descendants will become a great nation and be a blessing to the world. Now, we've been educated today to look at these verses in a very jaundiced way as we will see. And I think many of us don't realize how our minds have been been played with. In Genesis 17, God is still working with Abraham. He said, if you walk before me and keep my statutes, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to make an agreement with you that you'll be my people. And I want to use you for a purpose. I want to use you for a purpose, not because you're any better than anybody else, I'm working out a plan. I'm working out a purpose on this earth. He said to Abraham, and he also said to Sarah, you'll become the father of many nations. You'll become the mother of many nations. Kings will come out of you. Leaders will come out of you. And you're going to possess a land. 
In Genesis 17, verses 11 to 14, he says, I want circumcision to be a sign among your people, the circumcision of males. This will set you apart. It will make you different. It will make you any better. It's going to make you different. People will notice you, even in some very personal ways. And he says a person who is not circumcised is actually going to break the covenant with God. This was no little thing. Again, it was part of a bigger picture. In Genesis 19, kind of as an aside, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they had become dens of iniquity and wickedness. And the primary sin that is mentioned there is homosexuality. Leviticus talks about homosexuality as an abomination. It's horrible. But this is the perspective that God was providing to his chosen people. A perspective that was meant to be an example and an instruction for the world. Genesis 26, these promises were reiterated to Isaac. He said, if you obey, your descendants are going to multiply as the stars of the sky. They're going to possess lands, and they will be a blessing to the peoples of the world. This expansive promise continues to grow. But Isaac is reminded in verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 26, I'm reiterating these promises to you because Abraham obeyed my voice, obeyed my commandments, obeyed my statutes, and obeyed my judgments. You know, we don't encounter those commandments and statutes and judgments until we get into Exodus. But the implication is God instructed, Jesus Christ instructed Abraham in these things. But God keeps his covenant. He keeps these promises. God doesn't have a bad memory even though he's old. <laughs> you know, as we get older, we, we don't remember things quite as well. But God's mind doesn't work that way. In Genesis 28, promises are repeated to Jacob. He says, you will multiply, your seed will multiply, and they will spread abroad. Prophecies here explaining what's going to happen to the descendants of Jacob. And they will be a blessing to the world. And he says, I am with you, and no one will be able to stand against you if you follow my instructions. These are very powerful promises. Then in Genesis 48, to the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're told Ephraim is going to become, his descendants will become a company of nations, a commonwealth of nations. These are very specific prophecies. The Jews never fulfilled these prophecies. But the descendants of Ephraim have. Manasseh's descendants were to become a great nation, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Not because they were any better than anybody else. God had a plan. He had a purpose for these people that the Bible makes very plain and clear. So the Bible gives us a historical perspective. If this is not taught in schools, if it's not taught by preachers, if it's not conveyed, people will lose sight of the big picture. History is not going to make any sense to them. This is going to be a series of isolated events. 
In Exodus and Deuteronomy, we see the, the, the birth of a nation. How God is actually beginning to put into practice and bring to reality these promises. I want you to turn to Exodus 19, because this is where the Israelites were brought out of Egypt, entered into a covenant with God. These were our either physical or spiritual forefathers, depending on the specific situation. They came before Sinai. And let's start in verse 4. It says, You have seen what I did. God is here talking to Moses. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, and they saw what God did to the Egyptians. You go back and read in the earlier part of Exodus the plagues that came on. First several came upon the Egyptians and the Israelites. And then God began to separate. When it got dark in Egypt, it was light in Goshen. When some of the other plagues came on the Egyptians, it didn't happen to the Israelites. And the word probably got around in Egypt, you know, (laughs) it's light down there in Goshen. There ain't no bugs down there. (laughs) Something's going on here. God is making it very plain. But he says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you supernaturally. I delivered you uh, out of Egypt. Now, therefore, now here comes the covenant. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant and obey my laws to follow my instructions, then you shall be a special treasure to me. A very special people. As we will see, not because they were any better than anybody else. God had a plan and a purpose that he was working out on this earth, and he wanted the Israelites to be part of. But they kept looking over the fence and not wanting to be part of it. If you will obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, teachers, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Verse 7, Moses came down and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all the words which the Lord had commanded them. Then all the people answered together and said, We will do it. All that the Lord has spoken to keep his statutes, to follow in his footsteps, to obey his laws, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Israelites didn't do what they were supposed to do. They turned away in the wilderness, had to wander for 40 years. God then spoke to uh, Moses to speak to the children of the children of Israel, the second generation that saw their parents wander and die in the wilderness. We pick up the story in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I'd encourage you to read the first ten chapters of Deuteronomy in one sitting to get the, the big picture, to get the focus. But the Israelites were told these were the children that saw their parents die in the wilderness. You would think they'd be very receptive to Moses' instruction. But they then turned away later on numerous occasions. And as we will get to a little bit later in the sermon, you would think Americans and the people that came out of Britain would understand how God had intervened in those nations. But they've forgotten. We've forgotten. And we're not being educated that way today. 
Very quickly, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says here, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you today to observe, that you may live, that it will go well with you. And you can go in and possess the land which the Lord God of our fathers is giving to you. Don't add to the words that I command you. Don't take anything away from them. Just do it. For your eyes have seen what the Lord did on various occasions as he began working with you. Verse 9. Now let's, um, verse 5. He said, I've taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them. Remember, they said they would. Therefore, be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. If you follow my laws, follow my instructions, these will set you apart from the rest of the peoples of the world. The Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Greeks. They'll literally set you apart. You'll be blessed and people will notice. This is your wisdom. I want you to be an example, a model nation to the world. So the people will look and see that you're blessed. And they'll say, verse 7, What great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and righteous judgments as are in this law which I set before you this day? And then Moses touches on something that he goes back to repeatedly through the book of Deuteronomy, about 20-some times. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget. Lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. Remember, don't forget. But they were also told, the latter part of verse 9, teach these things to your children and your grandchildren, how God intervened in history, brought your ancestors out of Egypt, gave you a nation, gave you a land, delivered you from your enemies. Never forget those things. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through about 15, when the Israelites came into the promised land, they were told, don't get involved with mixed marriages. Don't marry the people of the land. You keep yourselves pure. He says, you're a holy people. You're a chosen people. That is a biblical term. There's nothing wrong with it. God chose these people because he wanted to use them as an example. He says, if you obey, you're going to be blessed, and no one will be able to stand against you. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, the first couple of verses. See, this, this theme repeats... Through the book of Deuteronomy, Moses was trying to impress on the second generation that came out of Egypt, look, these things are important. Never forget these things. God chose you to work with you. Verse uh, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 here in chapter 8. Every commandment which I command you today must be carefully observed that you may live. It's going to be to your benefit and multiply and go in and possess the land that God swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these 40 years. He kept you alive in the wilderness to humble you and test you. 
A lot of people are told today that God loves you, but they're not told that God will also test you. You go through the book of Joshua. God told the Israelites, I'm going to leave some of the Canaanites in your land. You didn't chase them out. All right, let's leave them there to test you, to see whether or not you will stay on the right path or whether you will go off in a different direction. Here today, there's some 300 groups that came out of the worldwide church of God. Sometimes we ask, why doesn't God make it very plain and clear where his church is? Well, God is also testing a lot of people. And people have got to read and heed. They've got to think. They've got to analyze. They've got to make decisions. Where is the truth being taught? Who is starting to compromise the truth? So we've got to be able to make decisions, make judgments. Judging somebody is wrong, but making judgments is something we have to do to survive. Somebody tells you the law of gravity is done away with. Jump off the edge of the, the, the roof up here. Well, they told me I could. <laughs> no. We've got to think. We've got to make decisions. We've got to make judgments. God is going to humble you and test you to know what is in your heart. You want to do your own thing? Have your own form of government? Start your own church? Get a couple doctrines and an Internet site and you can start one. Makes a good family business. This is what's happening today. God wants to know what's in our heart, whether or not we would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled them allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, or your fathers did not know, it was new to you, that he might make known to you that a man should not live by bread alone. You know, this was lifted out by Jesus Christ, and we find it in the New Testament. But it's an Old Testament quote. Down in verse 11, it says, Beware, this was the message to the Israelites, Beware you do not forget the Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments. See, people today say, well, I haven't forgotten God. I pray to God every day. But they don't keep the Sabbath. They don't keep the holy days. They don't tithe. They don't follow the biblical health laws. So we've forgotten all these things. Now, this is the message that comes across loud and clear in the scriptures. Let's look at one other a couple of verses here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Like I said, if you read through the first 10 chapters of Deuteronomy, it's quite an education because it focuses on extremely important things. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. You read this and you think, wow, this is Old Testament? This sounds awful New Testament to me. And you shall know, or now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? Well, I want you to do all these rituals and all these sacrifices and all these other things. It doesn't quite say that, does it? What does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God? Or you fear to disobey, to walk in all his ways and to love him. That sounds pretty sentimental, doesn't it? (laughs) But this was God's thrust, his approach to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes which I command you this day. Done verse 16. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Paul quotes the same thing in the New Testament. You know, the textbook that we're using for our Old Testament survey class makes some very interesting statements. It's written by a Protestant writer, but he makes some very interesting statements. He says, the underlying principle of the law in Deuteronomy, a book about the law, is love. Did we hear that right? The underlying principle of the law in the book of Deuteronomy is love. Love is synonymous with covenant fidelity. Jesus said in the New Testament, if you love me, you don't have to keep any laws. He didn't say that, did he? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, you show your parents, you honor them by following the instructions that they give you. If you defy your parents, the message you send is you don't love them, really. You'll take everything they'll give you, but you really don't love them. It says, the aim of the Old Testament law was not legalism, but love. Inspired service to God. You know, preachers today that try and do away with the Old Covenant, away with the laws of the Old Testament, the moral laws, are teaching people the wrong things. They're lying to people. And the Bible makes it very clear, but it's interesting that many Protestants see that. And they realize that the thrust of the Old Testament law was love, to obey God. The point I want to make with this first part of the sermon is that this is just a brief overview of this big picture. That God called the Israelites, beginning with Abraham. He gave them his laws to set them apart. He wanted the world to see these are a different group of people. They're different because they have the laws of God. They're blessed because they follow the laws of God. That was the message that God wanted the Israelites to convey to the world, to be lights to the world, to be an example, to be a model nation, to show the world that blessings come from living God's way. And yet a very different message is being sent by our nations today. We can't get away from God's laws fast enough. We can't get away fast enough. The Israelites were reported, re, warned repeatedly not to forget the laws of God, not to forget their status. How many people have taken that status and, well, we're better than anybody else? That was not the reason they were reminded in Deuteronomy. Didn't, God didn't call you because you were the greatest. You were slaves in Egypt. Remember that. And it was my laws that set you apart. It was my intercession that made it possible for you guys to survive. The nations of Israel, America and Britain today, and the Commonwealth nations, were intended by God to play a special role in this plan. They understood it. You go back and look at British history. And many of the people that came from Britain to America, they understood that concept. There was something special about them. But they didn't apply it properly. I came across a book while I was living in Europe entitled The Chosen People. The Chosen People it was written by an English Catholic, a fellow by the name of Clifford Longley, 
He's a writer for the Times and the Telegraph. And he describes this idea of the chosen people as a big idea that shapes America and England. He said, you cannot understand America and you cannot understand England unless you understand this concept that they felt they were called by God, that they had a destiny. I think they took it to rule the world. The destiny was to be an example to the world, a light to the world. But he spends quite a bit of time going through this whole concept. And he says there's plenty of information there that we only forget at our own peril. But this is our history. This is who we are as a people. This is where we've come from. As Mr. Wakefield mentioned in his sermonette, many of us, our ancestors came here as immigrants or as slaves or uh, as indentured servants, as some cases may be. But God brought a group of people here to experience something and then be able to eventually share that experience with peoples of the world, not to just hoard it, not just to enjoy a bunch of things for ourselves. But God makes very plain. He's working out a plan and a purpose that we've had, I think as Winston Churchill said, we've had the incredible privilege of being part of that plan and that purpose. He understood some of these concepts. But if we look next at some of the very specific warnings that God gave to his chosen people, Leviticus 26, you can go back there, mentions, if you disobey my commandments and despise my statutes, some of those statutes include homosexuality is an abomination to God. It also says that God hates divorce. These were statutes of God. He said, if you despise those statutes, there are also statutes that said, don't get tattoos all over you. That's pretty personal, isn't it? But that's the fad today. You watch these guys playing professional sports, especially basketball, where their arms are exposed. They're covered with these things because it's the thing to do, and yet God says, don't do those things. I did a short study on this some years ago, and many people that get tattoos wind up being positive for hepatitis and a bunch of other infectious diseases. If you get uh, your girlfriend or your boyfriend's name tattooed on your arm and then you break up, what do you do? (laughs) I love Jane, but I'm not with Jane anymore. And Susie doesn't like that. I don't know what it costs to get one, but it costs an awful lot of money to get it taken off, if they can take it off at all. God says, don't do these things. You know, the pagans, the heathens do things like that. You down in New Zealand, look at some of the Maoris down there with the tattoos all over them. These were pagan nations doing these things. God says, I don't want my people doing these things. I want you to be a light and an example. In Deuteronomy 28, a parallel chapter to Leviticus 26, says, if you disobey, in verse 20 it says, you will perish quickly. You will perish quickly. Moses introduces that concept. Isaiah picks it up. Jeremiah picks it up later and said, you turn away from God, you will perish suddenly. If we see the euro come apart 
and a worldwide financial crisis that hits America, these things could happen very suddenly. And yet Moses was warning about that. Isaiah and Jeremiah warned about that thousands of years ago. Said you will, others will lend to you and you will not lend to them. We're the biggest debtor nation in the world today. We borrowed from people that are potentially our enemies. This is not wise. This is crazy. But notice in Deuteronomy 28, verse 37, again, this is what I want to get back to, the, the lesson that is here to be learned. God recorded these things so that we would learn lessons if we have eyes to see. Talks about your sudden demise, things are going to happen to you, you're going to go into captivity. But notice in verse 37, you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among the nations where the Lord will drive you. This word astonishment means an amazement, a thing of horror. Did you see what happened to the Americans? And how quickly it happened? And how they went down the tubes? Do you see that? Do you remember that? This is what's coming. You'll become a byword. Other translations say you will become an object of scorn and ridicule. Stupid Americans? Didn't they see what they were doing to themselves? Can't pity those people. They didn't even listen. They didn't learn a thing. Down in verses 44 and 45, it talks about uh, others will lend to you, you will not lend to them. They shall be the head and you shall be the tail. Moreover, these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. Many people today think, that's oh, no big deal. I love God and I'll keep Sunday. Because that's what's in my heart. God never commanded that. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. We read about the fall of Israel in the Old Testament. We read about the fall of Judah in the Old Testament. We read historical accounts in Josephus and other places about the fall of these two nations. One of these days, people are going to be reading about the decline and fall of America, the decline and fall of Britain, the demise of Western culture and Western civilization. They're already writing about these things. In one of the books that uh, Patrick Buchanan wrote, this was about 10 years ago, The Death of the West. And he's talking about very perceptively what is happening to America 10 years ago. He's got another book that just recently came out entitled The Suicide of a Superpower. The Suicide of a Superpower, What We're Doing to Ourselves Today as a Nation. Came across another book recently. Caught my t- the title caught my attention because I've used the phrase a number of times. I grew up in the 60s. If somebody would have told me homosexuality would be legal today, I said, you're nuts. A book by David Jeremiah is a Protestant preacher. He says, I never thought I would see the day when various things would happen. 
and you look at his title table of contents, when Christians wouldn't know they were in a war, when Jesus wouldn't be so profane, when marriage would be obsolete, when morality would be in free fall, when the Bible would be marginalized, when the church would be irrelevant, when a Muslim state could intimidate the world, when America would turn her back on Israel. He said, I never thought I'd see the day when that would happen. What's interesting in his book, he says, I don't know what the future holds. He sees the problem, but he doesn't see the big picture. He doesn't understand where it's all going to go. He doesn't understand the role that you and I are going to be able to play in turning the world right side up, changing the course of history. Let me just give you a couple of other scriptures. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, we're there, so we'll just have a look at it quickly. This is a prophecy to the children of Israel if they proceeded not to obey God. And brethren, we've got to learn from these things. As I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And evil, the NIV says, disaster will befall you in the latter days. The Israelites did turn away from God. Moses said it's going to happen in the latter days. In Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah talks about a time of Jacob's trouble coming in the latter days. That phrase is used there. It says your national sins are going to be incurable. Moses said you're going to totally, utterly corrupt yourselves. We happen to be living in this period of time today where we're seeing this happen. In Jeremiah 23, another chapter where this phrase is used in the latter days. It says misguided shepherds will scatter my flock and cause my people to err. They will take them down the wrong road. They will point them in a wrong direction. And the whole nation will suffer as a result of that. He says, you will forget. He says, I will utterly forget you and forsake you because you have forgotten me. In Jeremiah chapter 2, as he takes you read the whole chapter, Because Jeremiah says to the house of Jacob and the house of Israel, I brought you into a beautiful land. Picture America. Picture Britain. Picture New Zealand. Picture South Africa. Picture Canada. I brought you into a beautiful land and you defiled my land. Not just physically, but spiritually and morally. You've changed your gods. It says pagan nations haven't done that, but you have. You've changed gods. You've made your own gods and you've rejected me. You've turned your back on me and transgressed against me. Bible prophecies, you can check them out again in Hosea chapter 8, Ezekiel chapter 7. Ezekiel's kind of interesting because Ezekiel mentions 60 or 70 or 80 times. When I begin to intervene and punish the nations of Israel, they will know that I am God. They will know once I begin to do these things. In Ezekiel chapter 7, it says, you've had it. The end has come. 
And disaster after disaster is going to hit you and bring you down. These were the warnings that God gave to Israel. I want to go back to this book that I had here a minute ago. The Chosen People. This Catholic writer who is not unsympathetic to Britain and America. He talks about you can't understand America and Britain unless you understand this concept that they follow, their guiding star, that they were the chosen people. But on the very last page of his book, he basically says, but it doesn't matter. He says, so our final conclusion about the chosen people theory has to be that while it is still influential, it simply isn't true and never was. The historical evidence alone refutes it. Well, he's not looking at all the evidence. He says, as an argument here, he says, and while if the chosen people theory were true, God could be relied upon to punish such a nation that abused its privileged status as he sometimes punished the ancient Hebrews. In the real world, no such divine correction operates. That's a big statement. He's a bit premature. God says he is going to bring about the downfall and the punishment of people that he called and blessed for a reason because they turned their back on him. Let's look at another aspect here. How did this happen in America? As we talked about in the very beginning, we have done all kinds of things in the last 50 years to turn away from God. And we're seeing the fruits of that now. But what we need to realize is that we started out on a very different track. And this is where American history needs to be understood and taught. I was never taught these things in school, and they're not teaching it today. America was founded as a Christian nation. Many people don't want to believe that today. But you go back and look at American history. We were founded as a Christian nation, and our founding fathers stated as such that we were a Christian nation. Just some of the facts. 52 of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Orthodox Christians, deeply committed. They were Anglicans. But they believed in God. They believed in Jesus Christ. The Continental Congress voted to purchase 20,000 Bibles for the people of this nation. That would never get through Congress today. (laughs) The Bibles would never be allowed in schools today. And yet this is what happened in America. Patrick Henry, a Virginian, he said, This great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what some of our founding fathers had to say. But these things are not being taught today. George Washington made the statement. He said, let us, and this I think was in his parting address, let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. You can't do it. There is no historical evidence that you can remain a moral country without religion. John Adams said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. 
This is America's heritage. This is how we started as a nation. President Obama made a statement recently, said, while we used to be a Christian nation, we are now a nation of Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and atheists. George Washington would turn over in his grave, as would many of the founding fathers and many of the people of this country. James Madison, one of our presidents, said, We have staked the future of our political constitutions on the capacity of each of ourselves to govern ourselves according to the moral principles of the Ten Commandments. And now it's illegal to put the Ten Commandments in public buildings in America. Brethren, this is how far we have fallen. Sometimes in the church we think, well, they didn't know the truth. No, they didn't, because they weren't called of God. But they were trying to build a new nation based on biblical principles. People tend to think, well, the Puritans came over here, and they were just a bunch of you know, silly, ragtag people. Look up Puritans. Many of these people were well-educated. A number of them came from two Puritan colleges at Cambridge University. Many of these people were wealthy. They were trying to purify the Church of England. They wanted to start all over in a promised land. And something like 97% of all the colleges established in America prior to the Revolution, prior to the Civil War, were founded by churches to train ministers so they would have an educated ministry in America. Alexis de Tocqueville, a young Frenchman, came over here in the 1840s. And he was surprised at how educated people were, even in the backwoods of America. They were reading newspapers because they had been taught to read. Many of them were taught from a book entitled The New England Primer. which taught people to read using Bible verses. You compare this with some of the children's literature in schools today. They were taught the alphabet. A, they learned a little phrase, in Adam's fall, we send all. B, heaven to find the Bible in mind. C, Christ crucified for sinners died. D, the deluge drowned the earth around. And E, Elijah hid by ravens fed. This is what George Washington probably used to learn to read. And Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. The man by the name of uh, McGuffey, William McGuffey, wrote McGuffey's Readers. That again, used the Bible and he made no, no excuses for using Bible verses to teach young people. William McGuffey actually graduated from Washington Jefferson College, where I went to school, the Presbyterian School, first school established west of the Allegheny Mountains. But this was the primer that was used to teach education in America. When he died, towards the end of the 1800s, 
all his readers were secularized. One of the, the chapters in his book that talked about God's creation and now about Susie and her pet bird. I was reading a children's book just the other night, teaching little kids how to read. It was talking about horrible Henry and how animals got their tails and stuff that's silly. And yet the founders of our country built a country based upon biblical principles. And yet all these things have been thrown out the window. I came across some quotes relative to American education. It said, many American educational institutions founded by churches, and listen to this, have abandoned their Christian foundations. Other colleges with Christian ties have largely deserted their Christian allegiance. Despite this massive departure, and I'm quoting here, of so many formerly Christian colleges from their original charters, they would not exist without their Christian forebears. Brethren, this is what has happened in America. If you look at what where we are today, <clears throat> a nation that was founded on biblical principles... has basically turned around and begun to criminalize Christian beliefs. You heard that right. To criminalize Christian beliefs. 1963, prayer and Bible reading were banished from public schools by law. 1965, a student's prayer in a cafeteria where they just bowed their heads and prayed a personal silent prayer was claimed unconstitutional in America. In 1970, no-fault divorce was instituted. You know where no-fault divorce was first instituted? In Russia in 1917 when the Bolsheviks took over because they wanted to destroy the family. This isn't some progressive idea that we've just realized is so wonderful. There's reasons behind these things. 1973, abortion was legalized. Legalized murder. 1980, the Ten Commandments were outlawed in schools and public places. In 2000, students have been dismissed and teachers have been fired for quoting the Bible or having a Bible in the classroom. Same-sex marriage has been legalized. Homosexual preachers have been ordained. Marriage has been redefined. Homosexuality is promoted as normal to children in school. We have gay pride parades in America, in Britain in Australia, in New Zealand, and in Israel. This is where we've come today, from a nation that was founded on biblical principles. An item is wanting, some people want to put an item on the ballot in San Francisco that if a parent circumcises their child, they're going to be fined. God said circumcision was a sign of the covenant. This is how far we've gone. Some of you may be aware, but the, the phrase, in God we trust and one nation under God, these have actually been challenged in court that they should be illegal. You know, what people forget when they forget history, it was Dwight Eisenhower that by decree established the motto, 
and God we trust. It was not a sentimental thing. Eisenhower had watched the invasions in World War II when they sent a whole fleet of ships from Britain to land on the shores of North Africa. He said it was an absolute miracle that fleet was at sea for a week or two weeks, never spotted by a German submarine. And the big swells rolling into the, the shores of Morocco the day before the invasion. The hour of the invasion came, and that morning the sea settled. He saw things like that. Whenever they set off an invasion to Sicily to begin moving up the boot of Italy, <clears throat> the ships sailed from North Africa, and a storm came up. Men that were around Eisenhower saw him bow his head in prayer. He said later, he told God, it's in your hands now. The storm, it was really bad, put the Germans off guard. The next morning when the invasion was landing, the sea settled, as some said, dramatically. So the same thing happened in Normandy. Go back to the Revolutionary War, the same thing happened there. Washington was trapped several different times. The weather intervened. And people at that time realized that God was watching out for a nation that he wanted established for a reason. Brethren, this is where we have come from to a point where we're turning our back on God. Most people think we're very progressive. I mentioned this earlier. And most people don't realize that there was a group of people, a group of fellows, intellectuals, came out of Germany. They were Bolsheviks. They established a Frankfurt school in, in Germany to promote communism in the West. They had realized that Communists will never get the workers of the world to unite. But they theorized if we can get the intellectuals of the West convinced that the West is rotten, if we can march through the institutions and gain control of the culture, we can take over America and the West and promote a different set of values. American history shows what has happened to America. And this should really be a lesson to the rest of the world because they're being impacted by some of the same weird ideas that have been promoted here and have caught on. But the Bible reveals also that God is calling a group of individuals that he's choosing. Now, you didn't choose God. You're not here because you just figured out where everything is you know, supposed to be. Now, you're here because God reached into your mind, adjusted some dials, and allowed you to see a big picture. That's why you're here. God is going to use you and those that he's calling 
to literally change the world. We go through the prophecies every year at the feast. We've been called to become kings and priests, to reign on this earth with Jesus Christ. We've been called to become teachers, teachers of God's way of life. To be able to say at one point in time in the future, this is the way. This really works. This is the direction that you need to go. And to be able to say that with conviction. This is why we've been encouraged in the scriptures to study. 2 Timothy 2.15 To show yourselves approved unto God. Able to explain the word of God. Why we've been urged to recapture true values. Get back to what's right. Get back to what's true. To focus on this big picture. I want to conclude with just one or two verses. Go back to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 talks about a lot of false prophets and the consequences and the effects on the nation of Israel. But there's other some verses sandwiched into this that we need to be reminded of to keep this big picture in mind. Genesis, excuse me, Jeremiah 23. Verse 3 says, Behold, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall not fear or be dismayed nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Brethren, God has called you and he's called me, he's called us to become some of these shepherds that God is going to use to restore not only just the children of Israel, but to teach the whole world the benefits of following God's way. Brethren, I hope that we can be thankful on this Thanksgiving weekend, whether you're here in this room or whether you're listening to this from someplace else around the world, to be thankful for our calling. You wouldn't be here if God had not intervened in your mind and open your eyes to see this big picture. Hopefully we can see the incredible opportunity that God is offering to you, whether you're a young person, whether you're an older person, to literally have the opportunity to rule and reign with Jesus Christ on this earth, to bring about a time of restitution of all things. We're watching the apostasy of America and the apostasy of Britain. But we're also going to have an opportunity, if we make it into the kingdom of God, to watch the renaissance, the restoration of America, the restoration of Britain, the restoration of Canada, and the restoration of the whole world, if we can stay focused on this big picture that God has given us an opportunity to see. I hope we can be thankful for that incredible vision that incredible opportunity. Let's be in the kingdom of God together forever.